to the Plant Spirit Summit. I'm your host, Max Tanev, and in this series, we'll be exploring the intersection between ancestral plant spirit healing and psychedelic medicine, asking the question, can psychedelics heal the world? This 90-minute panel is called Integration Therapist versus Coach Showdown, where we discover how these two professions compare in terms of their background, the requirements, and the scope of practice. We're going to discuss um, the key similarities and differences between integration coaches and therapists, what integration tools and practices are available, and how to decide which path is right for you. Um, and to deepen your inquiry into this topic, we invite you to download the handbook for advocates and culture creators to learn more about the topics being discussed and to answer the self-reflection questions provided in the back. The entire program schedule is also indicated in the beginning of the handbook. And the link to the handbook, which will be shared in the chat, is um, bit.ly forward slash psychedelic dash handbook. The Plant Spirit Summit is sponsored by the Plant Spirit School Integration Coach Certification Program, Waking Herbs and the Soul Vine. So thank you to our sponsors. Um, Waking Herbs is offering a three rapé blend and karipé giveaway. Um, give it, and you can also get access to discounts from our ethnobotanical and educational partners when you upgrade to the All Access Pass. And so introducing our panelists, today I am so excited to bring you Catherine Orman. She has worked in mental health for nearly 40 years and she's a licensed marriage and family therapist assisting people with their personal and spiritual growth. Eva Cheska De Angelis is the founder of Temple Soto Luz. Her unique background and training has led her to combine traditional counseling and psychological methodology with esoteric and shamanic approaches. Dr. Richard Miller has been a clinical psychologist for 56 years. He is the host of the Mind, Body, Health and Politics, this podcast, I guess, and the author of Psychedelic Medicine and three forthcoming books. And Paul Antico holds certifications as a compassionate inquiry practitioner, a psychedelic somatic interactional therapist, and as a provider of Dr. Stephen Porges' Safe and Sound Protocol. Welcome, panelists. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Great to have you here. Um, I'd love to um, ask, start off with asking each of the panelists um, a little bit about your journey and how you got onto the path that you're on today and, and the work that you are doing today. So let's start with Paul. Great. So how did I get started in this path is... Um, as many people start out with their own healing and that was approximately nine to 10 years ago. And I was looking to get through a lot of my anxieties and fears. And so I started out with um, looking for ayahuasca. And back then it was a little hard to find ceremonies. It took me like three months of asking people. And then I had to um, be vetted and it was a whole procedure is really very different from, you know, now where it seems like it's much more available anyway. So, you know, I went into this experience and, you know, my intention was to have the mystical experience. And I thought, okay, I'm going to feel this unity, this oneness. It's going to really, you know, give me something solid and confidence and I'm going to, you know, really make some good strides on my, uh, fears and anxieties. And you know how ayahuasca just doesn't always 
provide <laughs> what you'd like or what you're thinking. So I got essentially six hours of anxiety on steroids. Mm. Is how I would describe it. Mm. It was just awful, really. Um, and it was very valuable, of course, because my takeaway was, wow, this is how much anxiety I'm really carrying around. And so um, I just didn't touch it for a year. It was a little too much, you know, for me um, at that point. And then so I went back, did it, uh, you know, this uh, second time. A year later, it wasn't, wasn't quite as bad, but it wasn't great either. And then I kind of skipped it for four years. In the meantime, I was working with cannabis as a way to sort of, because I had a, I, I didn't realize how much fear I really had in, you know, in my body and part of my life. And so um, with cannabis, I was deliberately getting anxious. So it's a different way of using it. I was like, I knew I would get anxious if I smoked it. So I smoked it just to get anxious, okay. but it was a much lower level of anxiety. So I could, handle it better you know and of course it's a shorter it lasted shorter so i and it took me about a year or more of working with cannabis in that way to get to a point where i felt like okay i can actually not only not feel anxious but actually feel really good and so um then some other things were showing up, like I'm feeling guilty for feeling good. It's like, we don't allow ourselves, you know, that pleasure, peace. Anyway, from there, I went back to ayahuasca and I found a group that, that I felt was really um, very heart-centered and, you know, very positive group. And uh, I went back and I still had a little, you know, wasn't the best experience again. And then I had the bright idea um, of why don't I just lower the dose? If it's too much, if I'm having too, too overwhelmed, you know, let's, let's lower it. So I did, I cut the dose in half of the second night and that was the best. I had a heart opening. I was crying all night. It was just wonderful. Cause you know, I wasn't so um, busy fighting the overwhelm and just trying to hang on, you know, which taught me a lot. You know, the integration circle that I lead is called uh, dosage and healing trauma. And I'm really about, lower doses are much better, particularly for people with a lot of trauma. So I'm kind of, you know, giving this long story about this kind of my own, you know, uh, process. So I sat with this group for a year and, you know, all the time dealing with various levels of anxiety or in openings. And, you know, it took me eight months to work up to a full dose from there. Um, I started noticing things in my life, situations where I was anxious before I wasn't anxious. So, you know, that's kind of from there, you know, then I, I took uh, Gabor's class and compassionate inquiry and started leading integration circles and, you know, really started, you know, I would say uh, learning more about the trauma informed practices, how that works, attachment theory, all these kind of things that are super valuable. And that's kind of, that is how <laughs> my uh, longish way through my own process, a little, little, tips or, you know, a little info about my own process that really came out of my own healing, you know, experientially uh, to find out how to get to this place. You know, one of the takeaways for me and for everyone would be, you know, it's not necessarily a quick process. It can be a lot quicker than typical talk therapy, but it still takes a little time.
Mm, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Paul. I think it's so interesting what you said about cutting the dose of ayahuasca in half because I think that's not even a, a concept that a lot of people have when they think about drinking, drinking ayahuasca. Think, no, you've got to drink the whole cup or multiple cups and like whatever you get, that's what you get and you've got to hang on for dear life, like you said. But um, very interesting to hear your approach of taking, taking a lesser dose. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, it was um, a big deal. If I can just jump in for a second, it was a big deal for me too because I was like, oh my God, will they let me do it? <laughs> you know. I yeah. went ahead of time and asked and the shaman was like, oh, totally fine. <laughs> no, I've literally had exactly the same thing where I've been like, oh, are they going to think I'm being like, I don't know, like too squeamish if I don't want to drink the whole cup. But then they're like, yeah, of course, however, however much you feel it's comfortable. So thanks. Awesome. Um, Richard, would you please tell us about how you found yourself on the path that you've been on for many, many years and, and, and yeah, a little bit about your journey. Okay, uh, before I do, I want to make a comment uh, segueing from what Paul said, which is I haven't uh, heard anything in uh, the TomTom -tom system and haven't seen anything in the literature with regard to microdosing with ayahuasca and hadn't really given it much thought until you said what you said, Paul. So I think that's, uh, you know, an avenue that needs to be explored. Um, I, um, I got involved with... Um, psychedelics for the first time in uh, 1965 uh, when I uh, was reading uh, Leary and Alpert's uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in the back, they uh, stated that if you eat uh, morning glory seeds, uh, heavenly blue or pearly gates, they had uh, lysergic acid in them. And as I recall, there was a, a protocol. And so I got together with a, a friend and we had uh, two uh, our ladies' friends as guides. We didn't. Know, there was no word guide then, but we knew enough to know that we better have some people who are sober while we engaged in this. And we each ate 400 morning glory seeds, which was quite something to ingest. Uh, it's sort of like eating psyllium nowadays. It doesn't go down very easily. Um, but we did it, and I had a remarkable experience that uh, changed my life. Um, I. Uh, I went back in time to what seemed like the beginning of time. Uh, I was involved in an explosion and a great uh, a, a source of uh, orange light. And then I uh, saw development of things on, on this big rock that turns out to be the planet. And then saw uh, quickly, it was a kaleidoscope. The film was moving very quickly from people in caves to people banding together. And then I was all of a sudden fast forward into ancient Egypt, watching the pyramids and then the uh, medieval uh, the re revolution brought me up to the present. It was, and the, but the takeaway for me was that it's all inside all of us. It's all encoded in there. And that's what I, what I, uh, that was part of my takeaway. And the other great takeaway was that I pictured the planet uh, as this great ball of uh, flying through space and I saw all of us humans on the planet uh, 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 connected through what looked like an electronic, uh, no, uh, electrostatic hairnet. And I had this deep sense of connection with humanity. And my takeaway from that was to look at this, at what's going on in the planet from that day back in 65 until this moment, to view it politically, uh, to see what's going on as a, a, um, an experiment and a battle 
between two conflicting ways of living on the planet together. And one of them is what I call radical Darwinists who come, who are still influenced by how we were in the caves, which was the strongest physically, the strongest person was the ruler. And we saw that continue, a version of that, uh, until uh, the United States, uh, the colonies overthrew the king, because the king was a classic straw man who could, at, at, the, at the wave of his finger, could have somebody's head chopped off. And, and so we started a new era in development, and that new era is in conflict with the, with the radical Darwinists, because the new, the new era is an era of humanism, and those of us who are part of that particular group um, see living on this as part of the planet. We don't live on the planet. We are part of the planet. We view collaboration and cooperation and taking care of everyone as the goal, whereas the radical Darwinists see a top-down uh, structure. And that, to me, is where we intersect, we being those of us who are involved in, in the advancement of psychedelic medicine. Because the question you asked at the beginning of the panel was, how, do, how is psychedelics going to heal the world? I'm not sure heal is the word, but it, how are psychedelics going to affect the world? And what I'm advocating for is a strong political commitment upon uh, by those who are involved with psychedelics to the cause of a humanistic vision and a humanistic perspective on how the planet's going to get ruled. And right now, it's a critical time, because if you look around both the United States and the planet, the radical Darwinists are winning. The people who are, call themselves dictators, tyrants, authoritarian types are doing very well. And so we have an opportunity, those of us who play with the gods by indulging in, in psychedelics and, and helping others indulge with psychedelics, I think can affect this conflict. Uh, I think I'll stop there. Thank you so much. I love the detail with which you described that first journey that you had even all those years later, all these years later. Um, fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. I can picture it as if it's happening right now. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> um, Evacheska, could you tell us a little bit about your path and your journey to getting to where you are today? Yeah, I have had a, a, a well, I would say all of our journeys, of course, are unique. But I, I certainly think mine is quite unique, given that um, my journey was very heavily influenced by Richard, who is my father. Um, and so I kind of grew up in this um, in some way, shape and form. And, um, you know, at a very young age, understood what set and setting was and really didn't engage with these medicines uh, recreationally. Um, I did have one experience with mushrooms when I was 16 and was very clear with my friends that set and setting was crucial. And it ended up being a very deep ceremony for all of us. And integration was just a part of what happened afterward with us checking in together regularly um, afterward to see what we were doing and how we were incorporating what we learned in that experience. And then I really didn't touch another psychedelic until my, my mid twenties. Um, and started doing a lot of my own personal journey work that way. I was a very young corporate executive um, for a multi-million dollar corporation and a workaholic and um, started a deep meditation practice as I was 
um, kind of in secret, you know, didn't want anybody at work to know that that's something that I was leaning into. And alongside that meditation practice, um, started my own personal work uh, on myself in psychedelics and also um, with my dad. Um, and it led to very, very deep healing and introspection and contemplation, both within myself and also in our relationship and our family. And I started feeling more and more called to it. Um, and became more and more increasingly more and more unhappy in my corporate career. And I, regardless of how much success I had had, was just incredibly unhappy and then was looking to the psychedelics to go inside and figure out why I was unhappy and what was going on and kept uncovering more and more and more about myself and the way I viewed myself and the way I spoke to myself. Um, and from there, it started happening a little bit with friends where they would come to me and they'd say, hey, I hear that you've been doing this with yourself. I love these stories. Can we do this together? Can you support me? And so I started to. Um, and, uh, and then I suffered a pretty severe heartbreak and for the first time in my life, decided to treat psychedelics, not like a medicine, but like a drug and did not go into uh, the experience with any kind of intention whatsoever, other than I want to feel no pain, um, which is an intention in and of itself, of course, and the medicines have a wisdom, but I didn't think about that at the time. And um, what came out of that experience was um, a deep understanding of love being the most powerful force in the universe and that everything was going to be okay and that actually my path and my calling was a lot bigger than what I had allowed it to be. So I left corporate America and I went back to school to study psychology and um, became a trauma-informed practitioner and mindfulness and meditation coach and um, have been working um, and studying both in the more traditional forms of education and also in shamanic practices, um, studying ayahuasca as well, going deeper in my own practice and um, taking everything I learned growing up and my own learnings and my own healing to be able to create a space of facilitation for people creating their own healing, because I believe we all are our own healers. And these medicines have the wisdom to help us get there on our own um, with some support. And I think, you know, all four of us are part of that support and the medicines are really providing that support in and of themselves. Beautiful. Thank you. I think it's really fascinating how your journey kind of started off um, in reverse to a lot of other people's in terms of like the first mushroom journey that you had in your teens, you were actually conscious of what integration was and you were making sure to check in with your friends afterwards. And then later on, you used them in a, in a different way. That's super interesting. Thank you, um, Eva Jessica. Um, Catherine, could you please tell us a little bit about your journey and how you reached where you are today? Sure. Well, um, back in the day, I was a hippie and a deadhead. And um, worshiping at the shrine of Gar Jerry Garcia with uh, shrooms and LSD and so on. And I also had been th in therapy a lot because I came from a difficult childhood. So it takes quite a while to unravel that. So I was kind of lost. And one year I went to 17 shows and you know, I was just hanging out. And I saw this ad for the school uh, for transpersonal psychology. And I realized, God, that's what I want to do with my life. Because I, uh, transpersonal psychology, for people who don't know, is the combination of traditional mainstream Western psychology and all other psychologies. So we would give equal credence to Eastern religions, shamanism, uh, body therapies, um, 
meditation, everything is, was up for grabs. Every sort of spiritual path was seen as integral to a person's development. This is very different than mainstream psychology. Freud thought that um, spiritual search was pathological. So most, I'm not saying most therapists think that, but it comes from that root. So I went to the transpersonal school, uh, the only accredited one at the time, and I got my uh, master's degree there and um, began practicing. And um, Stan Groff, who some of you know, was one of the founders of transpersonal psychology. So part of what we studied in graduate school, even though it was illegal, was uh, Stan Groff's LSD research in psychotherapy with people. And um, so we were studying that as a valid, this is back in the 80s, we're studying that as a valid form of treatment. So when I would have my private practice, I had in the very fine print, but you could see it there, that I would work with, um, I would help people with, we didn't call it psychedelic integration then, but that I was available to work with people who had psychedelic experiences that wanted some kind of help with that. And before Michael Pollan's book, I would get about one person a year would contact me about that. And so it'd be something like I went to the jungle and I got totally blown out. And so we would work on that that sort of thing. And of course, after Michael Pollan's book, the phone never stops ringing. So obviously it's been a big change, but there have been a lot of people around for a long time doing this kind of work. Underground, um, the part that I do as a licensed therapist is not underground. You can bill insurance for psychedelic integration. Can you believe that? For the licensed therapy before and after. And um, so for me, the journey was, uh, and then it was gradually coming out of the closet about that, because for a long period of time, if you were involved and in, interested in psychedelic research, your reputation went immediately downhill. You know, you were no longer, you're just a woo-woo person. You're just a woo-woo person. So it really was a matter of building my career. I went off, as Eva Cheska said, I was a, a corp in med corporate mental health for years in corporate mental health, uh, psychiatry, hospitals, running programs, flying around the country, doing consultation on mental health programs. And I had to keep that whole transpersonal psychedelic side under wrap. So it's really, um, as, it's, as I got more solid in my career, I'm like, I got a resume. I don't care what you think. <laughs> you can see that I'm a reputable person. I don't care anymore. I'm out of the closet and, um, we're doing this psychedelic integration work. So I think that's great that the whole, uh, at least amongst the intelligentsia, that everyone's coming out of the closet about it. I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Absolutely. We have yeah. this new, new form of, not new, but we have uh, another form of healing that hasn't been available for a long time, uh, at least in the conventional world. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine for people like you who've been doing this work for, for so long and had to be in the closet for so long, it's the renaissance that's taking place at the moment. It's so exciting not having to keep that behind the scenes anymore. Yes. Can I make a right. comment, Mags? Please go ahead. Uh, just uh, related to what Catherine just said, uh, I've got a book coming out called Psychedelic Wisdom, and in it uh, contains 1,500 years of stories of uh, therapists, mostly, and scientists who have been engaging in uh, sub rosa, a psychedelic self-experimentation for decades. And so they allowed me in these interviews to out them. And uh, 
and they're coming out. And, and I, I really appreciate that very much that they're willing to do it. And I second, you know, what, uh, what Catherine said about, you know, the importance of people coming out together. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And that the name of the book is Psychedelic Wisdom. Psychedelic Wisdom, yeah, in the Traditions Bear and Company. Perfect. And is there an expected date for release? Well, it's already out on Amazon and Simon and & Schuster and Barnes and & Noble in terms of the, uh, the advanced uh, ability to be able to sign up for it. It should be coming out in the next few months. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much um, for sharing that. Um, I'd like to pose a, a question, another question to all of the panelists. Um, I'll start off with, with Paul again. What does integration mean to you and why is it so important? Integration um, is an interesting, you know, I guess when you hear people talk about integration, there, there can be a lot of definitions. Um, and there's two particular definitions that I like. And, you know, the one is probably the most common one that you've heard, it, which is that psychedelic integration is the successful embodiment into one's life and spiritual uh, of, of spiritual and psychological insights emotions, sensations, visions that are received during the psychedelic experience that support our healing and growth and well-being. And it's so taking those things that occurred during the psychedelic session and making them part of our day-to-day -day life so that we can, you know, actually hang on to the, uh, the growth and not just forget about it. And then the other definition that I really like, it's, it's, it's really saying the same thing in a little different way. And it's integrating disowned parts, shadow parts of ourselves, um, such that more feelings and choices are available to us in our lives. And so it's a little more concise. And I think it's really saying we're taking those parts that we're, that we're afraid to see or that were suppressed or that we had to suppress, you know, when we were young, it wasn't safe to, you know, express those things. Being able to feel safe enough to express those and make them part of our day-to-day -day life, we become bigger people in a sense. We have more choices available and, um, you know, we're richer human beings, essentially. And that's sort of... Um, you know, and I think the importance of that just kind of is inherent in that explanation, really. So we're all better off when we can feel more and not suppress more and we're friends with our shadow. <laughs> so that's my take on that. Amazing. Thank you, Paul. Richard, what does psychedelic integration, sorry, what does integration mean to you and why is that important? Whenever we go to some form of a residential treatment or experience, be it a weekend, be it a week long, a month long, whether we use uh, a medicine or not, we have a powerful experience because coming together for the purpose of expansion of the mind, of healing, of prevention with other people is a powerful experience in and of itself. And when it's done in residence where you're living together every day or hanging out together every day, be it one-on-one -on -one with, a, with a therapist you're hanging with or in a group, that alone is a powerful experience. When you add psychedelic medicine, it supercharges the experience in terms of depth, depth and breadth. 
The question then becomes, as Paul pointed out, what can we bring back? Because if we don't bring back, then what we've had is a ride. And it could be a wonderful ride in the country. It could be a ride at the circus. It could be a horror show. There's a lot, a lot of different kind of rides. But what do we bring back that we can use? So part of what integration is for me is describing the bringbacks, getting them down, memorializing them for future use. And I'll come back to what I mean by future use. The second part of integration is looking at that which is brought back and planning for how to expand on that going forward how to expand on it in terms of healing, things that you notice during the psychedelic experience, you've got a nugget. Integration and what follows integration is the mining of the nuggets. And when I said going forward, what I mean by going forward is one integration session at the end or two is just a beginning of a foundation. What is needed after that if the person is an integration specialist, such as Catherine, what's needed after that is for Catherine to make the proper referral to these folks so that they have someone to work with ongoingly in order to really mine those nuggets. So it becomes much more than a weekend or a week or a month. It becomes a foundation for a great deal of future work. I didn't mean to imply, Catherine, that you have to refer them all out, by the way. You sure, could he's keep sending some. my patients. <laughs> <laughs> you could keep some of them, of course, for ongoing work if you have time. But those are the two phases of, of, for me for integration. Memorializing, writing down, looking at together with that integration specialist what the carrybacks were, and then making a plan, which then gets implemented for mining those nuggets going forward. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that phrase, mining those nuggets. Definitely going to use that. <laughs> um, Catherine, could you tell us a little bit about what integration means to you and why it's important from your perspective? Well, integration, I believe it's a, in the Jungian uh, concept is about becoming whole. So it's integrating parts to become more whole. So I would see uh, psychedelic integration as part of a person's lifelong journey to become more whole. It's a very uh, concentrated part of it. I know for me personally, so we can uh, think, if we think a little broader, for example, my most difficult integration experience of my life was trying to return back to living in the United States after living in an ashram in India for a year. It was so difficult to try to go from that experience to this one and how to figure out to make my life work anymore with the things that I'd seen and experienced and known. And that's kind of in a microcosm, what a lot of people experience with psychedelics is they have such a big experience. They can't, they don't know how to integrate that back in with daily life. You know, that famous phrase, spiritual phrase of what do you do after enlightenment? You chop wood and carry water. <laughs> you know, and so how do I go back to chopping wood and doing my dishes? And how does any of this matter or mean anything? Or, you know, this is what a psychedelic experience can do for us when we're just uh, met with this great mystery and awe and wonder. So it is really, I think, experienced people helping, uh, helping people who are having difficulty becoming more whole after that experience instead of feeling more fragmented. 
which is often possible. Oh my God, I heard someone the other day at a uh, talk say, there's no such thing as a bad trip. I'm like, oh my God, that is so disrespectful to people who have a really difficult time reintegrating. It's really a misunderstanding. So that might get some audience upset, but as a, <laughs> as a, as a therapist, you can really see that some people do get shattered by the experience, these experiences and do need some help becoming more whole again afterwards. Mm, yeah. Interesting perspective. I think a lot of people have that in mind that, yeah, no such thing as a bad trip, but um, there are plenty of people who will tell you they've not had positive experience. I've worked on inpatient psych wards where people are shattered. So, you know, yeah. Anyway. Thank you for sharing that. Eva Cheska, could you tell us a little bit about your, your take on integration? Of course, I absolutely plus one um, what everyone has shared so far and certainly agree on all of those definitions of integration. You know, I, one of my favorite definitions, of course, is um, the act um, of or process of creating unity. And it makes me think of the Sanskrit word for union, which, of course, as many of us know, is yoga. And um, yoga is a practice, right? It's a practice of creating union, of bringing together aspects of self with, with movement and meditation and breath and um, creating unity with integration within the self is, you know, all of you have spoken about this, bringing in pieces of the self together into one. And the reason I equate it to yoga is because I do really believe it is a practice, um, you know, outside of psychedelic medicine, my fundamental belief in life is that there is medicine in absolutely everything. And so therefore everything deserves integration. And so whether it is the way that you approach your day, how are you integrating what you took away from that day? How are you being mindful about it? Um, how are you practicing that just like yoga is a practice? And so therefore, to me, integration is about really calling in all aspects of the self and all aspects of the human experience and trying to get them into alignment and uh you know, that can be very challenging. A lot of us refer to our higher self, right? Getting our human self and our higher self into alignment is a form of integration. Um, and that's why it's a practice, not a perfect. And that's why it takes support, whether it be from community or from a therapist or from a coach, um, but truly about creating union with, within the self. Yeah, thank you so much. I love that definition of yours, Evacheska. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so yeah, as you kind of alluded to, there are lots of different options when it comes to seeking out integration support these days. You know, a lot of people, um, are seeking out coaches. A lot of people are seeking out licensed therapists, you know, community integration circles there. It can come in many different forms. And I think both for people who are looking to enter the profession as an integration specialist, and also people who are looking for that support, um, it is important to know the differences between coaches and therapists and, what skill sets they have, what they can offer, where they might, where which one might be best. Um, so I'd like to ask Catherine, um, what do you see as the primary differences between an integration coach and a therapist? Well, the primary difference is that um, to become a licensed therapist, there's a certain pathway you need to go on. And I'll explain that more, um, more uh, specifically. And for an uh, integration coach, unfortunately, there is no standard whatsoever. So anybody can actually pronounce themselves to be an integration coach just because they want to. Obviously, my colleagues here have had wonderful training and experience and, and uh, have 
walk their talk for a number of years. But we all are aware that there are people just taking a weekend seminar and pronouncing that they're now experts in this. So um, I think that the um, requirements for entry are very different. Um, for a licensed therapist, you have to have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. Uh, many uh, therapists are also psychologists, meaning they also have a PhD. And I think one of the most important things is after we finish those degrees, we have to be supervised by other licensed people for 3,000 hours. Now, that may vary a bit from state to state, but that means you are, your work is being watched over, critiqued, you're being helped during that time to become better. And um, then someone who is senior to you in the field has to give you the uh, go ahead that you are approved. Now, obviously this doesn't weed out. There's still a lot of lousy therapists and um, a lot of very good ones, but at least it's something that a consumer who's shopping can say, at least this person has gone through this kind of training. And um, the same is not true for people who are uh, calling themselves integration coaches I think it's great to really look at someone and see, you know, what, what their training is, what their experience is. I know with my students, I say to all my students, because as I'm supervising them to get those hours, they're making mistakes. And this is great because we do make mistakes when we're learning anything. And I'll say, you know what, it takes about 10 years to become good at becoming a therapist, becoming anything. And so so say to yourself, it's going to take you about 10 years to get good at this. I don't know about you, Richard, but I feel like maybe I'm starting to get good at it now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think this length of time of, of uh, learning your craft, learning your trade, learning your art is uh, really indicative of the difference. Um, another difference is that therapists per se are not necessarily skilled whatsoever in uh, psychedelic integration because they it hasn't been legal for them to study and um, they may know absolutely nothing about it. So it's not saying that they're necessarily, uh, just because someone's a licensed therapist, they know anything about psychedelic integration. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, Richard, perhaps you could give us like a little bit of insight into the, the certification like how people can navigate that whole terrain of like, okay, obviously licensed therapists are certified and licensed and they have, um, you know, board of boards of regulators that have um, verified that they know what they're, well, that they can do what they do. How does that differ from the certifications that are available for coaches? I think- well, Not necessarily uh, how does it differ, sorry. I'll reword that. What, what, are, what are the certifications that are available for coaches? Well, I can't speak for what different uh, educational uh, means the coaches uh, go by, because I think there's a, there's a wide variety. Uh, you know, as Catherine alluded to, what you get with a, cert, with a, a licensed person is, is you get some kind of a standard that has been set. So in my case, I went through a very classic kind of education. I went to college for 11 years. I got a BA, an MA, and a PhD. While I was in clinical training for my PhD, I had to do uh, internships. Mm -hmm. And then after I got the PhD, I had to do a year of a residency. And so th that, that's what I know. And, and through those experiences, I worked both with 
with individuals. I worked with groups. I worked in mental hospitals. Mm -hmm. I, you know, they had me working all over the place right. to give me as wide a variety of experiences. So when I came out, you know, pretty much whatever came in, I'd already had some experience with. And if I exactly. didn't, I knew enough to call somebody and say, hey, something new just walked in and I got to talk to you. So that's what that's what I know. And that's what I bring to table with with psychological uh, integration. I come from an orientation that is of healing, because most of what we do as clinical psychologists is heal people who come to us with some form of disturbance. And then we have different orientations. But I don't know how it works in order to answer the rest of your question with guides, because I, there is no clear path yet. There will be. There, mm -hmm. there are no uh, formal training schools, but there may be some. And I think some people are coming in through certification in related fields, such as uh, Paul uh, talked about uh, Gabor's uh, training in trauma and Peter Levine and uh, and uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, all those three are doing trauma training and they're offering certificates. So if you go through one of those, then the people who come to you know, well, they've gone through this training and they can even look up on the Google what kind of training they went through. So uh, some of the of what we're talking about really depends on the client or in some cases, the patient. Uh, I differentiate between the two being clients are basically like healthy people who are functioning and who want to expand or be creative, whereas patients are suffering in some way and, and want help with the suffering before they get to expansion. They just want to get, you know, like have a regular day. And um, so the person who's looking for a psychedelic experience and then will follow it with an integration has to really be in on the decision of who they see. Because if what they want is a person to sit with them, make sure nobody comes in the door, to give them some oranges, you know, and be their sort of a goodwill ambassador, you could have almost anyone with a little training, and that would be okay, because what the person will have is an experience with someone to sort of take care, you know, more of a, of a psychedelic babysitter, you might say, but isn't going to get involved with stuff that might come up if they want to work on it right during the session, or at least they'll, they'll know better than to. And hopefully those people, if they run into something aberrant, such as what Catherine al al alluded to when she said a shattered trip, that's a shattered trip. You better know what you're doing, or you better be very prepared to have a backup person that you call on the phone to say, Hey, come on over and help me because we have a situation here that's beyond my skill level. Well, that's fine. Then the other kind of person is really looking for some either psychotherapeutic experience, as Evacheska mentioned earlier, purposefully using it, you know, for a, a psychotherapeutic experience, or perhaps a creative experience. They're dealing with some architectural problem or some engineering problem, but they want a professional person with them to guide them in going there. And so that they help th that person who guides them helps them not get distracted because the psychedelics can bring with them a lot of, of distractions. And if you're going in looking at a one particular thing and you want to focus like, like a laser on that under 300 micrograms or five of LSD, for example, you want to be able to stay focused because that's your intention. So again, it comes to what are you looking for? The person has to know. And that's where the person who is offering the experience 
And if the integration person is making that referral for the experience, the word intention is so important. What are you intending? What are you looking for here? What are you up to in doing this big thing? And then once you know what you're looking for, that helps whoever's helping to refer you or to get you to somebody can get you to the right kind of person. And of course, there's another factor that's very important that is political, which is what does this cost? Mm-hmm. And obviously, the higher level of person in terms of how many years they put into school and how much training they got, the more it's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, uh, and, and so we have a we have a very important issue here, mm-hmm. uh, which some people are starting to address, such as uh, Genesee Herzberg, Dr. Genesee Herzberg and Dr. Jason Butler, who started the Sage Institute in Oakland, which is, I believe, the United States first low fee for indigenous people, psychedelic psychotherapy clinic. So it's, you see the beginning of, of looking at it from what I alluded to earlier in my, in, in my hello, which is a humanistic perspective. How do we get this to the most people, not just the upper middle class and the, and the upper class who are leading the way because they can afford it or they can get access to clean medicine? Mm, yeah, I think that point that you make about cost is extremely important and would you say that in terms of access are people going to have more access to a therapist or to a coach in the climate as it is right now if they're looking for integration support specifically well it, it i don't know if you're going to get more access from either because it depends on who your contacts are and and whether you're wanting to do it the issue really is getting the cleanest material you possibly can getting the the purest and and that's one of the reprehensible aspects of what the united states government has perpetrated on itself and on the world for the last over 50 years which is that people have to buy uh, materials underground that is reprehensible that is putting the public at risk un- so unnecessarily uh, uh, of 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 who knows where it came from so this is a situation where it's our responsibility as psychedelic leaders to really spread the word, and I know we are, we can't do it enough of how important it is to know the source of what it is you're taking. Because if you get something bad, you're going to have a whole different thing to deal with than if you get pure material, because we know a lot about the pure materials by now, and we know what we can predict and what we can do. Yeah. I don't think there's a differentiation. I, I, I can't say, for example, that a, that a, a psychiatrist has any better access to clean LSD than a guide or a coach. There's no reason why they should. They both have to go to the black market. That's just how, yeah. unless they have, unless you have a friend who's a chemist and then you, then you have a very pure source, of course. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a very course. serious, it's a very serious thing we're talking about here because, yeah. because partly because of that conflict that I talked about between the radical Darwinists who want to lead, who believe that the strong person at the top deserves to be there and everybody else deserves to be below and the humanists wanting to collaborative life, the, the, the Darwinist group are going to bring with them as soon as these uh, psychedelics expand even greater than they are now, we're going to start to see the cartels moving in on production as long as it's illegal. And when we see the cartels moving, which they haven't so far moved in, they've moved in on MDMA. There's no question about that. They haven't seemed to have moved in on LSD, 
But when they do, we've got a big problem and everybody's going to have to have a way to mail their materials somewhere to get them tested before they use. Otherwise, there's going to be great risk in large numbers. I'm very concerned about that. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the criminal status of these medicines is, I completely agree. It's very, very concerning. Hopefully we're seeing a, short, a slow shift in that at the moment. Um, but in, in, in terms of access, I think it's also it, kind of what I was alluding to is more um, rather than the person who's providing the medicine and doing like a guided session, more about the support that's available afterwards. So like an integration therapist that's available for support after a journey versus an integration coach. Um, but on that note, I'd love to hear from Paul because I know, Paul, you went through Gabo Mate's um, Compassionate Inquiry Program, which I think a lot of coaches are doing to equip, with, equip them with the skills and knowledge to be able to um, come at integration coaching from a trauma-informed angle. Could you share a little bit about, um, about your experience in, in that? Yes, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, um, when I was, um, you know, really wanting to look into all of this, I, I looked at all of the, you know, coaching programs and why and none of them made sense to me because as you pointed out earlier, or Catherine uh, has pointed out, anyone can just call themselves a coach. The certifica certifications are all self-referential to the organization that put them out and you know i just wasn't drawn to that and so um when when i found out about gabor's training i thought okay well now this is something that's more substantial it means something it's you know it's it's a 18 month program and um you know it's it's less money relatively than most of the coaching programs <laughs> he's offering a really good really good material good value and he includes in it, it's, uh, you know, it's not like um, Gabor has just kind of put together this really excellent system and he acknowledges all the places that he's borrowed from. You know, he's got like Stephen Porges and Dan Siegel and um, Peter Levine and, you know, the all Vessel Vanderkoot, that's all on the reading list. Uh, Alice Miller, um, some great materials all the way and he includes a little you know piece of the transpersonal through he likes uh, uh almas as as sort of a, a more of a spiritual kind of point of view so it it, it 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 gives a very holistic knowledge and and gabor talks about how he developed this sort of system was through starting to work with plant medicine and how he was trying to get something together. So it really works really well with plant medicine. I find it's the best thing ever to talk to people about, particularly beforehand, because it helps them connect their present day issues and feelings and triggers with their past, you know, to right to the developmental trauma area. So my thinking with all of that is that ideally they'll, they'll make some um, embodied connection. It'll stir the pot so that when they do have their ex psychedelic experience, ideally it'll, you know, it'll come up because it doesn't always come up, even if you want it to come up. <laughs> so we try our best and, you know, and then sometimes people are, are a little, to um, defend it and they don't have quite the same experience. And sometimes as, you know, Catherine and Richard said, you can get shatter 
Um, and so if, if you're really not, as I would say, resourced enough, so someone needs to have a certain amount of, you know, sort of inner something to go forward. And that's where, you know, in, in um, my case, if I would have started lower dose from the beginning, it would have been much better, you know, and I just didn't know any of that at that time. So uh, I'm not sure if that's answered the question, but, you know, I, I think a solid foundation like that is really important and vital for working with this. Cause uh, you know, as um, Richard pointed out, you know, you, you, you gotta be ready for what's going to come up and you gotta be able to recognize, well, this is a trauma response that's, that's coming up and maybe it's a great thing and you, they just need some support as opposed to freaking out. Oh my God, what are they doing? <laughs> you know? So um, there's kind of a lot to the whole area. Um, but something, you know, I mean, nowadays, if I could boil it down, I'd say you want to be developmentally trauma informed, particularly and attachment. Those I would say are the two root things of, of just about, you know, most of our issues in general. You know. mm, so I'd like, I'd like to comment on the, uh, both uh, Paul and Catherine mentioned shattered. Um, I do believe there's no such a thing as a bad trip. However, I do differentiate between a bad trip and a shattered trip. The, the reason I say there's no such a thing as a bad trip is because the dark stuff, that's the stuff, it's bigger than a gold mine. That's a diamond. And you want to mine that dark stuff and you want to get into it. You don't want to get away from it. And exactly. then you turn every bad trip into a great trip because you conquered more fear. However, a shattered trip is a whole nother thing. And that's what, what Catherine mentioned, where a person loses a certain amount of stability. They might even lose a certain amount of reality. They may be, go into what is considered, but I don't use those diagnostic labels, uh, but I'll try to use something close. Uh, let's say very different kind of way of looking at the world and a very different way of communicating. So they may be unintelligible to those of us who might be doing guiding. That's a shattered trip. That's a whole nother thing. And yeah. that's to be deeply respected and very carefully dealt with, but different from a bad trip. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Richard. On that. Yeah. And that's uh, thankfully um, I would say the shattered, trips are very low in, in terms of, but part of that is to do with screening, good screening. Yeah. Cause you know, again, getting back, if someone's not re resourced enough and they're already on the edge, you know, that's, that's where the psychedelic can take them into shattered territory. And e even, even not during the trip, but afterwards, Catherine said, it's like, they can really have a hard time putting things back together. Yeah. Well, I think Paul, we really need to acknowledge as a profession, that there is such a thing as a shattered trip. I agree with Catherine on that very strongly. We need to acknowledge it. it we, we can't act like these things are perfect and, and, and nothing ever happens because things do happen. And then we've got to deal with them. Yeah, I'm going to say a little more about that um, from my point of view, which is that psychedelics are not for everyone. And it's very important. I know earlier in uh, my life, I could tell I was still too mentally challenge from my family of origin to take psychedelics. I did wait till I was older and thank God I did. <laughs> and um, one thing that I, a licensed therapist can do, for example, one thing I offer to the community here 
I do use diagnostic categories. I think I find them very helpful. And so one thing I offer the community here is that I do psych evals for people who are curious whether or not they ought to take psychedelics, whether or not that's a healing for them. So guides or uh, coaches will refer to me. And then the person uh, you did bring up, Mags, that um, there is a cost differential quite a bit between experienced licensed therapists and a lot of uh, integration coaches. Although, of course, anybody in private practice is going to charge whatever they can get without laughing. So, so some coaches obviously expensive, but usually there's quite a cost differential. So they can come for the psych eval. Here's why I think that you're free to go or you're, uh, to use Paul's language, you're, you're strong enough, you're uh, resourced enough. Um, in my, my professional opinion or in my professional opinion, it's not the best thing for you right now. You maybe ought to do some psychotherapy for a while or get a job or, you know, certain types of things probably would be best for you to do first. And as an example of this, I did an evaluation like this for one young woman. I said, I don't think it's really a good idea for you right now. She was very mad and angry. And then I got an email from her six months later saying, thank God you told me that. Mm. Thank God you told me that because I got my life together so forth. And now I'm working with a, with whomever, but um, I think it's really uh, the community needs to understand that it's, this is um, as much as it is an ecstatic business. And a lot of how we heal is by providing ecstasy and pleasure for people. There's also this side of people who have not processed out their dark material. And that's both coaches, therapists, and the clients. Mm -hmm. And that is very dangerous stuff to be mucking about in if you don't know what you're doing. Wouldn't it be helpful to all of us if, if there was such thing as an open source online protocol for vetting That'd that be both, great. The but both the clients and the guides or doctors could all look at an agreed upon great. protocol, right? Everything you wanted to know about what to ask. I think um, the hard part with that is getting everyone to agree upon it, number one. <laughs> and there, and there are, you know, there have people that have attempted to do that. And I will note that and the AWARE project in Los Angeles, which is not really, hasn't been around for a while since the pandemic, but they have a really nice guide on their website. It, you have to find it somewhere for people to ask questions. And, and they're not the only ones that have done that. So it's kind of like, um, you know, I look, I liken the problem to like an ethics, you know, an, another ethics discussion, you know, mm -hmm. you discuss it all day long, but you can write out codes of ethics, but there's no enforcement. There's, you know, you can't do anything about it, really. You know, you have to trust the um, the integrity of the individuals that you're working with. That's why it's important to vet people as much as you can. You know, and just speak more to someone that's taken the time to do some kind of training is likely going to be, uh, you know, just like not necessarily, but likely to be a little more ethical in general. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Paul. Um... And I think we've we've touched a lot on you know the many things that a therapist can offer when it comes to providing integration support. Um, I'm curious to hear from Abacheska because we haven't heard from you as much just yet. Are there are there instances where someone might opt for a coach, where a coach would be a better fit for them? I know Richard mentioned before this differentiation between patient and client. If you're yeah. a coach, you have you have clients. If you're a therapist, you have patients. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, for therapy, you're looking for treatment, 
in a lot of respects. Um, you know, if there's something that you want to get treated specifically PTSD, for example, um, it would be a, a really important differentiator. Um, you know, Richard, my father spoke about expansion. Um, if you're really looking for expansion and you are trying to do that expansion through specific introspection, there's a specific goal. A coach can be a really great um, avenue for that. You know, therapists can be great for that too. Um, you know, we all overlap here. I, I certainly have therapists in my network and we refer out to each other. They send people to me. I send people to them. If the people are not ready for psychedelics or they're not ready for, you know, a more, um, uh, integrative experience, not to be confused with integration, but integrative experience, which, uh, you know, incorporates other methodologies, um, you know, shamanic methodologies, as well as sound and meditation and what have you to lend to that expansion. Then of course, you know, I would refer out, um, but if they're ready for something like that, then therapists refer to me, but to Paul's point, um, you know, of course, being trauma informed and, uh, attachment style informed is incredibly important. I had a client recently who did not come to me for treatment, um, who came to me specifically for goal, um, and, uh, an expansion and dissociated for three and a half hours in a, a psychedelic ceremony, meditation ceremony. Um, and so being a trauma informed practitioner made a very big difference in that experience for me. Um, you know, I think for people who are looking for something that's less traditional, perhaps they're not looking to engage in necessarily a long contract, though a lot of my clients do come um, for one specific thing. And then we end up seeing each other, you know, every week, which is beautiful to be able to, to facilitate and witness their process. Um, but if they're looking for something that is potentially more um, of a contemplative experience, more spiritually related, again, more goal oriented, that's a really good opportunity for a coach. And also, you know, there are, I can't speak to some of Paul's other, um, other methodologies that I know for me specifically, again, the integrative approach in using more traditional methodologies and then also pulling in some of the um, more non-traditional or um, esoteric approaches makes uh, for that whole integrative experience. So um, using meditation and breath work and sound, which is not part of a necessarily part of a therapeutic experience, though I do know therapists who do incorporate breath work, of course. Um, but that's less of the training that a therapist would receive and more something that you might find um, in the coach arena. Perfect. Thank you so much for all of those insights. I have a question which I'm going to throw out to the, the whole panel and whoever wants to jump in. Um, I'm sure it'll be a lively discussion. How necessary is psychedelic experience in providing inter integration support? Uh, I think it's crucial. I think regardless if you are a coach or a therapist, and frankly, honestly, in any profession, um, you know, coming from corporate America and learning from a lot of um, really terrible executives that were leading the way and paved, paved the way for me and what not to do. It doesn't really matter what you do. I believe that it's imperative to walk the walk. Imperative. Um, and there's a lot of talk in the talk out there in every single industry. Um, and especially in this one, I think not only is it important for us to have experience with the psychedelics, but also with our own shadow work. 
um, with our own, uh, our own integration, our own work, our own self-work, our own comp- contemplation and introspection. I, I can't tell you the amount of jokes out there that I hear on a regular basis about therapists being the ones who need the most help because they're not looking at themselves. They're looking at other people. Um, you know, I, I think we've all heard those jokes all the time. Um, and it's like, okay, like, let's be the people to prove those jokes wrong. Let's show them that, yes, like we have the experience with these medicines. We know how to navigate these medicines. We have all had difficult experiences with them and integrated those difficult experiences. We have understood when to reach out for help, how to resource ourselves, um, how to integrate, how to put those practices into play. If we haven't done that, I don't feel comfortable giving a client any kind of resource or support or guide work that I wouldn't practice myself. And frankly, moreover, that I haven't practiced myself because it feels incredibly inauthentic. And I think practicing from a place of deep authenticity is, uh, it's absolutely crucial. And I think it's one of the things that can make or break us, especially as we start to get into what we all agree is kind of no man's land right now, because it's not super regulated, um, at all. And, um, you know, if you look to the indigenous cultures who have been using these medicines for tens upon tens upon tens upon thousands of years, which I know we've had on some of the other speakers and panels in this summit, all of them started with not just their own work, but I know like the curanderos that I've studied with in in Peru and the lineage that like I've been studying with, they, sometimes it's years of their own work before they get into it years and years. So it's not, you know, like in our culture and Western culture, it's, you know, 11 years of college and it's these training programs and it's Gabor and it's Peter Levine and it's all of this stuff. But, you know, in, in the cultures that have been using these medicines since really the beginning of time on almost every single continent on the planet, it started with the leaders the people, the, the medicos doing their own work first. And so, yes, I do think that it is absolutely imperative, absolutely crucial to have experience with all of these things, not just with the psychedelics, but also with the integration. And frankly, it's irresponsible to not, in my opinion. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, uh, there's a tradition in psychology started by Sigmund Freud of the therapist uh, undergoing uh, psychotherapy. Uh, And all the early analysts uh, were psychoanalyzed. And uh, over time, uh, that dropped off for a variety of reasons. I was very fortunate. I went to a doctoral program where they offered us uh, psychotherapy. And I had psychotherapy, both group and individual, for four years. But what I saw with my colleagues around the country when we get together for meetings is very few of them had such opportunities because most of the programs did not offer that. So what that meant is that the graduate students uh, and interns and residents, as we went through, needed to pay for the therapy themselves. It was almost impossible because most of us didn't have any money going through those programs and we might be borrowing money just to go through the program. So then to pay a therapist on top of it was out of the question, which that meant all these graduating therapists went out there without the personal therapy that Evacheska is referring to, and then had to start picking it up on their own as they were working in the, out in the world or, or in practice. So that was, they were sort of behind the curve, if you will. That was really problematical because there's no question 
that we all of us in the in the profession of the clinical psychology and psychiatry, we all agree that we should go through therapy. I don't think that's a controversial issue. The issue is the economic one. How do you get the people there? Once again, the politics. Mm, thank you. And I think that we're hitting on two things here, the importance of doing your own work with another therapist, but then also the, the importance of having psychedelic experiences to be able to support, for example, someone who's gone through a, a shattering experience or who's had a really difficult journey that they don't know how to make sense of. Well, and furthermore, sorry, if I may, furthermore, just, just the embodiment of the understanding of what it's like to feel your neural pathways shift and then integrate that experience. You know, if, if you, you know, it's, it's not to say that every physician who is an oncologist should have cancer in order to treat cancer. However, this is a very different approach, right? It's like we, are, we are truly changing our physiology and, and changing our neural pathways. And, you know, the, the closer we are to that experience, the more comfort our patients and or clients will feel, the more that they will trust us and the more that we will be able to understand them, which creates, again, that unity, that union. And that in, in and of itself is a, yet another form of integration. It's integrating us as people who are creating community which then thus creates further healing. Um, I agree mostly. Um, I think that anyone going into the field needs to have had psychedelic experience if they're entering it now. Um, I think that um, more important than any kind of training is whether or not you've dealt with your own shadow material because anything you haven't worked with is going to come up in the space and you're not going to know what to do with or you're going to be unconsciously blocking the person from their material coming up because you're afraid of it yourself. But I think there are some occasions when I have referred, I'll give you an example. Actually, I actually have two occasions of this where people, uh, therapists or clients have contacted me seeking, uh, they've been in therapy with a therapist that they feel good about, but they've been reading about psychedelic uh, experience and they would like to try that in addition to their therapy. And I feel if they have a long-term good relationship with their therapist, I've made myself available if the therapist has any um, questions, but the therapists themselves don't feel uh, that they're psychedelic integration specialists, but they're in favor of their client doing this conjunctive work. And in that case, I felt really good sending the person back to that therapist with the caveat that anything you don't understand, but you have this long-term relationship that is therapeutic. I think that in that case, in cases like that, it can be quite beneficial and enough for that person. In fact, there's a person um, uh, supervising the work long-term. She's going now for her second MDMA session, of course, as a licensed person. I don't know that, but she is. And um, the therapist is doing the work with her and the client's feeling really good about how that's going. Thank you. I think that's that's a great point. And I think um, whilst it's def there's definitely a distinction between coaches and therapists, there's no reason why they can't work together um, and step in at different points. Like Avicheska mentioned, you know, she's often referring people out to therapists and people are referring clients to her for coaching. So um, thank you for that. Um, Paul, I'd love um, to hear about, I mean, I'd love to hear about everyone's tools and approaches to assist people in integration coming from their different um, their skill sets and experiences, perhaps you can start us off by telling us about your approach 
to the yeah your tools and approaches to assist people in integration? Um, I think I already kind of alluded to that. The compassionate inquiry as a modality is, is it's very modular, and you know, it's something that I use all the time um, with people. So it, it, you know, it, it gets a little bit back to Catherine's point about if you have an established relationship with someone that's therapeutic, and the CI process is similar in that you know you're you're kind of establishing a, a relationship, and it's based on the actual issues. You know, because I think of psychedelics often, well, completely really as secondary to the healing process. It's a tool, but the main attraction is the healing. I mean, you know, and this is. Uh, separate from people that are going for expansion kind of reasons. So that is one tool that I use a lot. And speaking also what Eva Cheska said, the, the community is, can be really important. If that's something that you can't always, you know, as an individual, you have a mini community of two, but, you know, advising or, you know, trying to get people more involved, you know, as part of psychedelia integration, we have community events. And so I would encourage people to, you know, join in with some of those kind of things. You know, there's specific practices like, you know, breathing, types of breathing and, you know, for centering like nervous system calming breath, which something like four, seven, eight breathing or things along those lines, like Stephen Porges talks about getting that calming the nervous system and really, you know, physiologically tuning in, you know, which speaks a lot to co-regulation and also what people, what Eva Cheska and Catherine both saying, the importance of doing your own work so you can be that calming presence. That's a really powerful tool to have with someone else where they can co-regulate to you. Even um, Marcella, who's one of the, the chief, I think, um, runs a therapy program at MAPS. She was once uh, giving a talk and the two most important things she said to being a good uh, psychedelic therapist were um, doing your own work and self-care, which speaks to how important those, you know, having your own stuff together, so to speak, you know, knowing your own shadow. And I totally agree with what Catherine was saying. If you're afraid of something yourself, you can totally block it in the person that's you're you know working with because you're afraid of it yourself so yeah. worth repeating yeah. yeah it sounds like no matter for therapists or coaches it's that's a really crucial part of being able to show up in the best way for clients and patients yeah you want to be completely non-judgmental and very accepting curious you know as they would say and the, the corrective experience you know in attachment work Mm, so for someone who's perhaps looking for a coach um, and, you know, like we've discussed, they don't have they don't have the same accreditations that a, a therapist would have, but they want to make sure that this person is going to be able to provide the support that they need. Are there any specific questions or things that you um, things that you would advise they look for in addition to what you've already mentioned about them being developmentally trauma informed and uh, informed on attachment theory as well? Or would you say go off the feeling? Yeah, well, those two are, are important. And then um, also just their general experience. How long have they been doing it? What's their background? Have they been working with psychedelics also? Because it's, it's hard. It is hard to, 
to tell, it would be hard to tell, you know, but though there are a lot of people that wouldn't say that they're trauma informed, they might not even know what that is. I would stay away from those people. <laughs> okay, great tip. Thank you. Right. Um, I just, as we're coming towards the end of the panel, I just want to take a look at some of the questions that people have, uh, um, have yeah. added here. Does that, do, do any stick out to you, Richard? Yes, they do. I was, I was just going to ask you if you wouldn't mind doing the same thing. So one person asks here, I'm now interested in what we do after, uh, after enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to answer that. The holy grail after enlightenment for me is being able to make every day a great day, regardless of what's going on. And by a great day, I don't mean a day without pain. A lot of pain we can still have a great day because even though we're having the pain and we're suffering, we can also be grateful for the fact that we're here having the pain and suffering because trillions of sperms and eggs never made it to life. And we did. We're the best swimmers and the best receivers, and we got the opportunity to be here. So even a painful day is a day. And so from that perspective, the Holy Grail of enlightenment is to have that appreciation every single day and to pass that on. Um, there was another question that I, I really liked here too. Um, oh yeah. Does, do you all ever tell a person instead of having a psychedelic experience to get a job? I thought that was a great question. And the answer is yes. There are times when it's more important to get a job than have a psychedelic experience, of course. I want to add to what Richard was saying, which is that I don't remember who said this quote. I'm going to have to look it up after this panel because it's really has really guided a lot of um, how I think about personal growth, personal and spiritual growth, which is that if it's not making you a kinder person, then what are you doing? So if we're not becoming more compassionate to our fellow humans, if we're not having more self-love, if we're not acting better, uh, then it's really just kind of masturbation. You know, it's really just, we want to be able to use these experiences somehow to, to uh, contribute to the human experience of a more loving place to, for all of us. Thank so you. after enlightenment, if you become enlightened, I hope you'll spread it around. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Someone asked a question here about, how about people seeking help from psychedelics to tackle feelings of incompetence and uselessness uh, or someone who's erratic, chaotic, and inconsistent? Well, to me, that's a person seeking therapy. So they're, they're looking for treatment uh, in their psychedelic experience. I was going to ask the panel, I, I have these things that I think of that people look for in psychedelics, and I'd be interested if you, if you uh, uh, see these also, and do you have additional ones? People seek psychedelics for treatment, expansion, creativity, and adventure. Oh, and then I should add a fifth one, sex. So sexual relations. Are there other things that people that you, that you might add to this list that people are seeking in psychedelics? Most of, the people, most of the people who contact me are looking for a magic cure. Magic cure. So that's treatment. I don't think so. I think it's just the magic cure of all suffering in uh -huh. one six-hour okay. experience. 
Fair enough. I'm not Thank sure you. If this falls under the category of expansion, I would I would separate it out. But I, I think um, you know the um, spirituality and connection to nature, mm-hmm. uh, connection to you know plant spirits and uh, various other aspects of their own spirituality. Understanding, you know, I I've been working recently with a couple of people who have been raised in like deep. Um, theology, uh, an Orthodox Jewish man, and also a Jehovah's witness. And, uh, you know, outside of what they have been raised in, really trying to understand the all. Um, and so that's a different kind of expansion, you know, it's outside of self expansion. And so I would, I would perhaps separate it. And, uh, and then certainly, of course, there's the the plant spirits and the nature aspect that uh, is a big one as well. Mm-hmm. Mystical experience. Yeah, the mystical experience. I I also think um I mean from my own personal experience uh, the the physical experience. Uh, you know, for me the somatic work has been such a big part of my um, entheogenic and psychedelic medicine journeys and ceremonies, um, and really being in this body and uh, treating it better and also learning how to use it differently. Um, you know, I, I've found LSD is a great potentiator, you know, exercise is a great potentiator for LSD, I should say, but also LSD um, has been very helpful in me understanding um, my mobility and my strength. Um, so there's also a physical aspect, somatic aspect. Is the mystical, is too much importance placed on the mystical experience? Hmm. I find that you can't, you know, the mystical is wonderful, but the embodiment and all of the other things, you know, like have to balance it out or else you're doing what Catherine said, which is you're looking for the magic pill. Mm. (laughs) And I think... I was going to say there's a great uh, saying that the mystical experience is a resource and not a cure. Mm. Mm. Mm, (laughs) Same here. We we were touching on this in the last panel where we were talking about um reframing trauma and uh i think it's the i I think the conversation is starting to shift a little bit now and realizing that the mystical experience is not the be all and the end all and we were actually ever touching on exactly the point that you're talking about about the importance of somatics when it comes to to healing and how it can't take place solely in the mind and for a lot of people anyway i mean it's got to be in this we live in this machine you know we have to embody it Mm-hmm. Now the advice, the advice that I give people for pre-journey is to pay the most attention to the body sensations and feelings, second most attention to any visions that come up or, you know, images, which are often very related to your body. And then last on the totem pole, insights and cognitive things. I would recommend, by the way, that those of you who come from the guide coach orientation, see if you can come up with a better word a word that has has a greater meaning and more gravitas. Because a guide, I don't think that's an accurate representation of what of what we're doing or what you're all are doing. Because you're not guiding someone. That that sort of a guide is someone you go somewhere with and they take you through, they lead the way. And that's really not what's going on. It's really more of support mm-hmm. and 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 guide and if anything, encouraging the person to go within, but not telling them where to go. And I think there's an implication with the word guide that you're so that we're telling them something, you know, you go here, a guide says, you know, take that trail or let's go up the hill. And coach has a, a very a physical uh, athlete 
uh, kind of uh, implication. And I think we need a really great word because it's an important, it's a very important profession and it's only going to get larger. Uh, you know, Rick Doblin has stated that we're going to need 25,000 what are now being called guides within a couple of years. Yeah. And so I'm just putting that out there that it, if we can come up with a really great word for what that profession or the group of I, people. I agree. I've been using the word facilitator, though it seems incredibly formal. Um, yeah. But there, there is guide work, you know, that does happen. As you know, you know, when you when you ask questions, even if you're not using leading questions, you, there is a level of guiding that is happening with those questions because you're guiding the introspection that is taking place. So it's not, it's not necessarily incorrect, but I, I do believe that you raise a really important point and facilitator feels so formal. And then the other words that I've explored personally, I don't know about you, Paul, but the other words that I've explored just feel so like woo woo and not uh, you know, giving us enough credit for the the deep and important work that we are doing. So um, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, we'll spread the word and we'll come up with something as a large group together. It'd be great to have that because I, I run into the same problem. And so sometimes yeah. what I'll do is I'll put sitter slash guide slash facilitators. I never, I never use the word coach ever. Yeah. So. <laughs> I like the word cycle pump which is the person in ancient Greek myth who ferried the people across the river into hell. Psycho, and then it's P-O-M-P. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> in the chat. Accompanied them through death. <laughs> a psychopomp. <laughs> Psychedelic doula, as someone said in the chat. That's not a bad, that's not a bad word. Yeah. Yeah have a few suggestions coming up in the chat. I like doula as well. Yeah, All right. Well, it looks like we, uh, anyway, but did you want to share something else, Paul, before we wrap things up? No, I was just reading another one of the, uh, possible words, synergist. I kind of like that one too. Psychedelic synergist. It has a nice alliteration as well. I do too. I want to make one comment. Someone did say healer. I, I feel the word healer is very risky because it removes the power of our client or our um, patient in the fact that we are all our own healers. And therefore I personally never refer to myself as a healer unless I'm talking about the work that I do with myself. And so I think it's really important for those of us in the space to not refer to ourselves as healers, not say I'm healing you because that's not actually what's happening. Um, you know, the people that we're working with, they are healing themselves through the practices and the support that we're giving them and that we're facilitating. And I think that's one of the reasons that for me, at least that word is not really on the table in terms of the right title. Thank you so much for making that point. I, yeah, I really agree. I think if someone calls themselves a healer, maybe, um, Maybe it's uh, a sign to look a little bit deeper into what they're about. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for, thank you for sharing Mags, that. Mags, do we have time for this last question here from Mariah? Um, yes. Is it one about the uh, what the government, if they'll start? Yeah. yeah, please. Please go ahead, Richard. So she asks, how long do you think it will be before the government requires licensing for anyone acting as a guide, coach, or facilitator? And the answer is, it'll take as long as it takes people who are uh, doing this to organize. Um, when, when I first uh, went out into practice uh, as a, a doctor of clinical psychology, there was no such thing as marriage, family, and child counselors. Uh, 
But enough people who did that got together, organized, put together a protocol, said who they were, uh, made requirements, et cetera, et cetera, approached the state, and now there's licensing. And so that, that allowed the public to gain the benefit of all these people and, and all their work. And the same is going to be true. So somebody, some group is going to have to organize and organize with other groups. With the Internet now, it'll be much easier than it was in the past. And then put together protocols, say who you are, what are the requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Then work with the government agency, try it out in, one, in, in the most progressive state first, probably California, maybe New York. And, um, and then work with the state, and the state will provide guidelines for what's needed for licensure, and then there'll be, you know, where are you going to go? Are you going to go under the medical, under the uh, psychological, et cetera, and it'll take it from there. Um, and, uh, and by the way, somebody else commented about the fact that the medical profession involved with psychedelics is going to have a tendency to pathologize, and it's not going to be good for the people take, having the experience. I 100% agree. The medical profession is, is, is based on treating pathology. And my profession has been in the past too, but in the last 50 years, we've moved in different directions because of Maslow and Carl Rogers and folks like that. Uh, so we're moving in a, in a less pathology and more health oriented. Uh, but there is that danger. So we have to, you know, it's caveat emptor. If I can note one thing about the healing process, and a lot of what I think all of us are doing in different ways, we're setting the container. Mm. You know, it's like we're getting the right soil and the water ready and everything, mm. and then the person is doing their own growing. Yeah. So, mm. it, you know, mm. and that's to me, set and setting is really more important than almost anything, and mm. really creating that safe space for someone to flourish on their own internally. Yeah. yeah. One last little addition here, coming back to Catherine's work and in, in integration. I think it's incumbent upon those who lead psychedelic experiences to connect the person with an integration person before they leave the, the psychedelic weekend or the psychedelic week. I don't think we, I don't want people leaving their psychedelic experiencing, having the third day integration, of course, but then going back and having to find someone. The best thing they can possibly do is have that, that person already lined up before the experience. So if they finish up on a Sunday or a Monday, that very week, they're already meeting with the person who's going to be doing integration on a weekly basis with them. I'm glad I got in that plug. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think there are too many retreat centers um, that don't connect anybody or don't even have those resources to hand to, to, to give to the participants that they welcome. So thank you for raising that. Um, Richard, before we wrap things up, um, I'd love to ask each of the panelists where um, the audience might be able to find them if they want more information about their work or to get in touch. Um, so let's start with Catherine. How might people be able to find you? Um, my website is my name, CatherineAmond.com. I also have a lot of uh, YouTube videos on psychedelic psychotherapy and uh, MDMA usage and so on. And uh, yeah, I'm online a lot of places. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and Eva Cheska, where might people be able to find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me at templesotoluce.com. It's temple, S-O-T-T-O-L-U-C-E.com. Sotoluce is Italian for beneath the light uh, in reference to all of our own shadow work. Um, and also it's Instagram at temple sotoluce as well as Facebook. Thank you. 
And Richard, where might people be able to get in touch? Um, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. That's the name of my broadcast. And uh, my programs are also archived, open source, free for everybody. Uh, so you can go back as far as 10 years if you care to. Mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Excellent. Thank you. And Paul, I uh, see so you've just dropped it in the I chat. Just put in the chat. Yeah, my personal uh, individual work is panamus.net, P-A-N-I-M-U-S, kind of a play on the god, Greek uh, god Pan and the animus. <laughs> in the <laughs> terms. And, Thank you. Uh, and then Psychedelia Integration is an organization that I'm managing director of. You can always find me through psychedeliaintegration.org. All right. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to have these links in the, um, the, the, the live replays page so everyone can access them there. Thank you for dropping them in the chat. Thank you to the audience for, for tuning in today. Um, thank you to the lovely panelists. I think we had an excellent discussion. We could have gone on for many more hours. Um, but yeah, super grateful for, for you having taken part. And thank you for everyone for joining as well. Thank you, Mags, for facilitating. Yes, thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. All right. Speak to you soon. Bye, everyone. Thank you.